if you have a Bible, open it to Revelation. It's in the very back. It's the last one. There you go. That's easy. Um, and uh, we're in this series called God is Great. And we're talking about these aspects of God that change the way that we live if we truly believe them. And I don't, when I say truly believe them, I mean believe them. Like not just agree with the information that's, that we hear. Yeah, sure, God's great. Yeah, God's good. Yeah, okay, God's gracious. Sure, why wouldn't I disagree with that? Maybe if I'm sitting here in church and I've been here for a while. But we struggle to believe these things are true in the sense and to the degree to which they really are. And if we believe them fully then our lives would look often much different than they do now. This is our third and last week talking specifically about the greatness of God, the bigness, the powerfulness, the majesty of God. And I could not think of a better way to end this little part of our series over the summer before we jump into our last aspect of God that we're going to focus on than to talk about how everything will end. Because, and I'm going to kind of give you the thesis this morning, uh, like I did last week, uh, I promise we'll get to the end faster than last week, uh, God, if God is great, and he is in control, and he ultimately wins in the end, then if we are in him, so do we. Uh, I'll say it again, if God is great, and he wins in the end then if you are in him, so do you. It really is that simple. That is what Revelation is intended to highlight for the church, to show the church. I want to just read you the very sort of something from the very beginning of Revelation, and then we're actually going to just jump when we look at another passage eventually to the end of Revelation, and I'm going to try to kind of sum up for you guys, mostly through interpretive dance, uh, what I think the rest of Revelation, yeah, Burf's excited about that. Um, I got my ribbons backstage. Uh, Revelation 1, 9 through 11 uh, say this, uh, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to the Pergamum, and to Thyatria, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. We'll stop right there. So, John um, is, uh, and this is not John the Baptist, John, uh, a lot of people call him John the Evangelist, uh, because he's been banished to the island of Patmos. He's been sent there as a punishment because he's proclaiming the name of Jesus. Um, now, this isn't a time for the church where persecution is as bad as it has been or will become again. So, if that makes any sense. Uh, prior to this, there was some really pretty rough persecution for the church. Under Nero, some pretty bad things happening. And after this, we're definitely going to experience some other really bad persecution. This is actually a time in the history of the early church where things are, are kind of more peaceful um, than you might otherwise think. But nonetheless... Uh, if you go and speak about Jesus, and that gives the impression to the Roman authorities that you're speaking against the power of their empire, then they don't want you to do that. Uh, because a big part of the Roman Empire is the idea that it is supreme. And uh, the Roman emperor is a god, is what was believed. 
And so if you do not believe in the Roman gods and particularly the god uh, Caesar, who is God, they believe, then you speak about some other god. You speak about the idea of this god who is the only right god, the god of the Old Testament, the god of the, of the Jews, the god of Christianity, uh, the god that Jesus proclaimed. If you proclaim the name of Jesus, you are in a sense speaking against the Roman gods and against Caesar, who is the head of this great empire. So John finds himself on the island of Patmos. Some of you might think, that doesn't sound so bad. Watch the movie Castaway. It's not as nice as you would think. He's on the island Patmos, and God comes to him in a vision and says to him, I'm going to show you some stuff, and boy, does he show him some stuff. And I want you to write it down, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to send it to these seven churches. Then he lists off the names of these churches. What happens following this is absolutely nuts. I mean, it really is. Like, uh, we were joking about this at family camp because I was sitting as the guys were practicing some worship um, last night getting ready for the service, and I was kind of looking at Revelation, and my wife, always so, uh, you know, uh, always so kind to me, was like, are you literally just sitting down to read Revelation right now? Uh, and I was like, have you read this thing? Like, this is, is this still a thing? Like, I never actually got to this. Did this happen? Is this supposed to happen? I mean, what in the world is this? And I was kind of joking. I've read Revelation, don't worry. i was joking about the fact that this is like, they kind of joke about people maybe becoming new to the faith and then starting out in Genesis. I was thinking, good thing they don't start at the very end most of the time and work their way back because they would be like, what is going on here? Because you read all kinds of imagery and things that happen and go, what in the world is this? Uh, One of the best quotes that I've encountered by this guy named G.K. Chesterton, um, who's a pretty famous uh, philosopher and biblical scholar, he said this. He said, let me see if my remote works. Though St. John saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as some of his commentators. That's a very fancy way of saying, if you thought the stuff in Revelation was nuts, you should see some of the people interpreting Revelation, okay? Uh, That's because there's so much stuff in here that is just hard to wrap our mind around. Here's generally what happens in Revelation. It begins with sort of this introduction that we've read. We get at what's going on with John. God comes to him in a vision, and he is immediately transported, it seems, to the throne room, or he at least hears a voice coming from the throne, and that voice is God. He then immediately begins to tell him, here's what I want you to say to seven churches. You've maybe heard sermons or read the letters to the seven churches because they speak to different things going on in some of the biggest, most prominent churches at the time. So this letter is written for Christians. It's written for people primarily in the church, not people outside of the church. And we'll get to why that's important in a second. And so it's written to these seven churches, and there's only really one thing that is the same in every one of those different letters, because they're all dealing with different realities and situations, so it makes sense that there's something a little bit different for each one. Then after these letters to the seven churches, we go back and are transported, again, physically, John is to the, it seems, to the throne room of heaven itself. He is there. There is God seated on the throne. We read about all kinds of like incredible things. We read about these angels and beings that have eyes all over them so they can gaze upon God. 
So like two eyes aren't enough to gaze upon the glory of God. They've got eyes all over them uh, because that's the idea that they would simply gaze upon his glory and it would be good. Then you get to what essentially seems to be apocalypse. You start hearing about things, the whole world coming upended. You hear about destruction. You hear about beasts, monsters, seals that are being broken, and then things happen after each seal is broken. These scrolls that are being unwound and, unwound and opened up. These really crazy, unbelievable monsters and creatures that are showing up and things are happening. There's a woman giving birth and a dragon waiting to devour the child that she gives birth to. That's happening. What follows after that is ultimately then judgment. There is this judgment of the evil, but more than anything, there is this destruction of the evil one and of the enemy. The enemy is finally crushed and destroyed. There's a period of time where he's thrown into a, uh, where he's thrown into a pit for a while and then eventually would come back and then ultimately be cast into a lake of fire with all those who experience that judgment as well. Then we read about something very interesting, the downfall of Babylon. We read about this account of the downfall of the empire of Babylon, the Babylonian empire, which was up until this point, this legendary, epic, widely known, like biggest empire that you could think of in human history up to that point, bigger even than the Roman empire. And then we're back in the throne room again for the end of Revelation as we read about and hear about things. Kind of everything is wrapped up. Uh, now, it's, uh, I want to go to the, the other thing that we're going to read in Revelation, and then this is really the only th- other part that we're going to read specifically here, and it's in Revelation 22. So this is at the end of all that stuff that I just explained and that I read. We read this in Revelation 22. Scholars will generally, generally agree that, um, that this is, uh, it's actually 21, sorry, that this is, uh, this is the summary of, uh, of really uh, what the whole point of Revelation is. I accidentally put 22 up there on the screen, but it's actually 21. It's going to be, I'll fix it for the second service. It's going to be Revelation 21, 5 through 9. Stick around, it'll be twice as good. So Revelation 21, 5 through 9, this is what we hear and encounter in the throne room after this vision has happened, as things are starting to wind down again. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give the spring of water of life without payment. To the one, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. For as the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This really sums up the point of Revelation, why this vision is being given to John and why he's being told to pass it along to the church. God is making it abundantly clear here at the end of the Bible, our account of his written word. He is making it clear that he has won. 
that he will win. Not only is he there in the end, restoring all things, he was there in the beginning. He says, I am the Alpha, the beginning, and the Omega, the end. Meaning, regardless of what you're experiencing, regardless of what is happening, regardless of what it is like for you to be following me right now, wherever you are, know this, it does not change the fact that I am the one who was there in the beginning and set things in motion, and I am the one who will be there in the end and will be victorious. This is such good news. When we say that God is great, this is how we know that God is great. He tells us, it's not just who I am that is great, says God. He says it is what I've done in creation that is great, that no one else could do. And it is what I will do at the end of creation and all things to restore and bring about peace with humanity and with my creation. It is almost universally agreed upon by scholars that most of what we read about in Revelation is about the Roman Empire. It is about the fact that these Christians are living as a part of this humongous, powerful empire that is spanned so far and wide. Uh, Jesus was put to death at the hand of the Roman authorities who believed in the Pax Romana, which is the idea, the, 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 the sort of fundamental belief, uh, the approach, you could say, really, of the Roman uh, military, which was when it looks like something might spark something else that might potentially grow into a problem for the Roman Empire, we squash it. We squash it with overwhelming force, so as to strike terror into the hearts of anybody who would think to speak against the Roman Empire or to rise up and rebel against them. The Roman Empire is a lot of people who have been conquered and brought in against their will and assimilated into that culture as it has spread further and further across the world. That's the difference between like a single country and we would say an empire. And so this place where there's great fear and great force and great control... And the claim is being made that God is the leader of this place, that the Caesar who leads is God. They, they say that you can often tell a lot about, uh, about a civilization, a people, a nation by the faces that you see on its currency. It says something about America that there are different faces on our currency. What that says is that not one person over time or even right now is like the most important person, the one in control. Caesar was the face on all the currency. When they asked Jesus, uh, are we supposed to give our money to them or not, trying to get them in trouble with the authorities, he says, bring me the coin, show it to me whose face is on here. They say Caesar because his face was on all of it. And he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God's. Revelation is being written to a group of people seeking to follow Jesus while living in the midst of this massive worldwide empire. And the message to them is clear. The message is this. God's empire is bigger than this empire. Because of how great God is, his empire is greater 
than the empire that you're experiencing and living in right now. He is greater than any empire. His is greater than any empire that has come before. His is greater than any empire that will come after on this earth. And then Revelation goes into showing with this incredibly mind-blowing imagery, much of which is symbolic. Revelation is not history in advance. It's not like a DVD playing out for us ahead of time, everything literally as it will happen. It is God showing John something that he can communicate to the churches so they will get an idea of just how small the Roman Empire is compared to the kingdom of God. The idea is pretty simple. Christians resist being a part of this. Continue to be a part of God's kingdom. Christians were a part of the Roman Empire whether they wanted to be or not. Some are Roman citizens. We read about that with like Paul. And then others weren't. And it's not bad to be a part of an empire, to be living in the midst of an empire. But what they found, the Christians very early on, was that most of Roman society, because they believed that Caesar was God, because they recognized that in order to sufficiently rule this many people, we have to have theology involved in this. We can't just say, do this because we say so. They have to say, do this because we're gods and we tell you to do it. Caesar himself is God himself. He is the one to be feared and to be sacrificed to. And so pretty quickly you realize if you're going to be a part of the Roman society, the Roman uh, people, the Roman Empire, and you want to do well at all, you want to be connected with people at all, you're going to have to bow down to Caesar. You're going to have to pay pledges to Caesar. You're going to have to go buy your meat from a temple where meat is sacrificed to these idols that are bad. Uh, You're going to, if you want to do anything socially, if you want to go to athletic events, if you think sports are a big deal now, okay, we have screens and TV that we can watch and uh, watch other things on. Sports were everything then. And you went to them. And when you went to them or you participated in them, people would get into rhetorical debates and argument and people would go watch this happen. And if you went to these things and you participated in these things, if you went to a party at someone's house, if you went to a banquet at someone's house, if you went to a thing for your work, chances are there was going to be a point when everyone was going to pledge allegiance to the emperor. They were going to pledge their allegiance to him as God, not just as king. They were going to bow down and they were going to say something like that. And people didn't think it was a big deal because they thought, yeah, sure, like the the Roman gods are fine with this and, you know, he is this powerful person. But the Christians had a problem. The Christians recognized that if we do follow God, this God of the Bible, if we do believe in what Jesus said and that he died for our sins and, and that God is the only true one, then that means that we can't bow down to this Caesar any longer. And because of that, they often found themselves withdrawing. They found themselves going, I can't go to that gathering of people anymore. I can't go buy my food at that place anymore. I can't go be a part of that sporting event if I have to pledge my loyalty to these foreign and false gods. They found themselves having to withdraw often from society. And as they did that, persecution came. At this time, it's believed that when this is being written and when this is happening, persecution wasn't at its worst. And that it wasn't because of persecution that they were withdrawing, it was the other way around. It was that as they were choosing to be less a part of what was going on, that made the Roman authorities, the officials, very nervous and uneasy. Because if people weren't bowing down to Caesar, it meant they were possible enemies. 
For this reason, Babylon is talked about in Revelation. The downfall of Babylon. Now, here's what's crazy. Even though it's clear that they're talking about Rome, they never say Rome. Why not just say the Roman Empire? There's two reasons. One, you write down in a letter that the Roman Empire is falling, and here's how it falls, and that letter gets read out loud at the wrong person and in the wrong hands. All of a sudden, you've got huge problems. The other is that the Roman Empire did eventually fall, just like the Babylonian Empire. And when the Roman Empire falls, now what? Revelations happened. It's all done. This doesn't apply to us anymore. We're done. That was the empire they were talking about then. The reason why God uses this picture of the Babylonian Empire, one that had already in many ways passed, was because it was important for Christians not just then, but God would know, he knew, it was important for Christians even now to be able to continue to say God's empire is bigger than whatever this thing is that's intimidating me right now. And that's the point of Revelation. Whatever the thing is that is intimidating me right now, whatever that empire or that, that group or that reality or that situation or the state of this thing in our world is that's intimidating me right now and causing me to be worried, God is bigger than that thing. In fact, whatever that thing is, it's going to ultimately pass away. And what will be left is God. So, be in God, not in that thing. As he writes the letter to these seven churches, the one commonality in all these letters is this, remain faithful. They're all different. Some, you're like, I wouldn't mind being a part of that church. Other ones, you're like, yikes, I wouldn't want to be a part of that church. But what's similar in all of them is the call to remain faithful because that's what the churches needed to hear. Revelation, like I said, is not a letter for non-believers. It's a letter for believers. How often is Revelation used with all of its crazy, vivid things as like the thing that you, people believe? This is what you give to a non-believer, show to a non-believer to say, look at how bad it's going to be for you and anyone who doesn't follow God. But Revelation isn't given to those outside the church. It's given to John to give to who? Churches. People already professing to follow Jesus. Why? Because chances are this in the hands of a non-believer is not going to change their mind. It will just tell them there's another empire that they need to fight against. And no, that empire isn't going to win. Those people are crazy. What it's meant to do is to remind the people who already believe, really, to remain faithful, to keep going. Why? Because God is great. That's why. That's the reason. Revelation's a reminder to past, present, and future Christians to remain faithful to God despite any suffering they endure, despite the cause of the suffering. And it does this not only by offering a hope of God's future salvation, but also showing us that God truly is in control right now. He's saying remain faithful now because God is in control. He's reminding him of what will happen to those people who are causing the pain and suffering, those who are evil, 
and reminding them of what will happen to those who are faithful. Oftentimes, those who lose their very lives for the sake of the kingdom of God, for the sake of following Jesus. So if you read this, if you read about, if you read about how it will end, you see how it will end here in the throne room of God. And you say, this is to be an encouragement. This is to like really jar us and wake us up and go, whoa. Okay, if I'm honest, God's a bigger deal than I give him credit for most of the time. There are those of us who may have tremendous knowledge of the things of God. You may be so good with the Bible. You may have read so much of it. You may have been around it. You may have been familiar with it for years upon years. And still would find yourself going to this vision given to John and getting woken up by it going, do I believe that God is this big? Does my life show that I believe in a God who's this big or that I have a lot of knowledge and understanding and history with a God who I think is a little bit smaller than this much of the time, if I'm honest? No, we are to look at Revelation and be woken up and reminded of how big God is. But ultimately, it is to do, like it seems very clear, how a person is supposed to respond as a result of it. And I think this is exactly the same responses. There's three of them. This is exactly what we are to do when we really understand how great God is. The first thing is this. We hope. We look at how big God is, and we take heart. We hope, knowing that the one who was in the beginning is the one who will be there in the end. That no matter what some philosophers or self-proclaimed geniuses or, 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 or people who know all things, apparently, would claim God is not dead, never has been, and never will be. We hope in the thing that we see these glimpses of in Scripture, and we know that one day we will experience in its fullness. That gives us, it fills us with a profound sense of hopefulness. It's been thousands of years since these words were written down. And people, Christians for thousands of years, have looked to them in totally different situations, in totally different times in their own empires that they're a part of. And have found hope in these words. Hope in these visions. Hope in this reminder of who God is. He is bigger than whatever else is out there. And he is for you. If you are in him. So the first thing is simply this. We can be overwhelmed with a sense of hope. And for many of us that's exactly what we need to hear right now. You go, I know God's big, I know God's great, I know God's in control, then my question is, if you know those things, do you feel hopeful? Do you have hope in that? Because this is what it's supposed to draw us to. The thing that comes after that, most naturally, is repentance. If you see how big God is, you are reminded of how much hope there is in him, Usually, when you're honest with yourself, you go, I haven't exactly been living in light of that. 
When I look at my life and the way I treat people and the way that I act and the things that I worry about and the things that my mind goes to and the way that my day-to-day life looks, I'm not sure that it actually reflects a hope in the God that I read about here in Revelation. And so what that means is it means we repent because repent is turning back to God. It means that we find ourselves being hopeful and then going, God, I want to turn back to you in your fullness and I want to live in light of that thing. And that's going to mean some kind of a course correction for me. It's going to mean humility. It's going to mean saying, God, I'm sorry that my view of you has gotten low, even though it's kind of understandable. It's still not acceptable or excusable in the world in which we're living today. So many of the Christians living in the Roman Empire had lost sight of the bigness of God simply because what was in front of them all the time was how big the Roman Empire was, how much they needed. It's like, don't worry about your God. You worry about Caesar because he's the one right in front of you right now. It leads us to hope And that hope leads us to look inward at our own hearts and say, am I truly living in light of the bigness of who God is? And if not, God, I want that. And I turn back to you. And I want my life to be a life that somebody would look at and say, that is a person who hopes in God. The last thing that it does is it leads us to worship. I mean, Revelation is a call to worship. It keeps going back again and again to a throne room where these things worship God. There is singing, there is praising, there is proclaiming. When you're a little kid, if you hear some of this stuff, you walk away thinking, man, heaven is going to be boring because all I'm going to do is sing. You get that impression because of how much worship is going on. Why? Because there's... Nothing that we can do and construct and build. It's not like in heaven, uh, God's like, here's what I want you guys to do. Go build something over here for me. And man, that'll make me, feel, that'll make me feel good. That'll make me really proud. No, God can be like, boom, that thing. I invented it. It's better than anything you could have built, right? I want you to do what you do, which is to worship me, which is why God created us, was to recognize his glory and his greatness and his goodness and his graciousness and to worship him as a response to literally sing praises about who he is. If the message of Revelation sinks in, really sinks in, then it gives much greater perspective to what it is that we do here every week for sure. Why do a bunch of off-key shower singers, basically, that means like, you know, you sing in the shower and nowhere else. That's not like you go sing at baby showers. I, maybe that's a thing. Why do a bunch of off-key shower singers get together once a week in a room and actually sing out loud when other people can hear them? Sing a bunch of songs that are kind of hard to remember the words to each and every week. Sing things that are sometimes repetitive over and over again. Why do we sing in front of other people? Why do we stand up and kneel down and pray and and lift up our hands? Why do we do all of these things? 
because we've been given a mere glimpse of the majesty and the greatness of God, and he has said to us, now do this. That's why. That's why we do it. We worship God first and foremost out of obedience to him because he says, here is how you respond. And when we're honest, a lot of us are like, is there any other way you'd like for me to respond than get together with a group of people and sing out loud so people can hear me? God seems pretty clear. This is the way primarily that you respond to me is that you come together and you worship. When your worship leader tells you to sing, they aren't just saying that because we're recording an album in here this week and we need some voices on the track. They're not just telling you that because everybody knows their perfect individual part and we all sing together and it sounds like perfectly orchestrated, put together, rehearsed thing. They're not saying that because this is an American Idol audition and they're not saying that because we've got to hit some quota that we get for singing and until we get to a certain volume, we can't let you guys out of here. The reason why a worship leader, a worship pastor calls you to worship and calls you to worship and calls you to worship again and again and again and tries to help usher you through this is because it glorifies God for us to physically worship and praise him, to say these things that are true about him, and then to say those things again. And if our heart begins to be hardened or numb to those things, to say these things, and then to ask ourselves why our heart is this way towards these things. Something I've come to learn about sort of the weirdness of the way stuff is in church, in the, in the world of church, is that there are two reasons that a church will worship well. There's two reasons. And there's pretty much only two. The first is that the heart of people is truly coming into contact with God and being shaped and changed by Him. The people of the church are seeing and being shaped by the very holiness of God. The people of the church are feeling the gratefulness that comes with the grace of God. The people of the church are reflecting upon who Jesus is, what he has done, how great God is, how little we deserve him. Those things are changing the people of the church to such a degree that the church is worshiping well. And by well, I don't mean on key. I mean the church is physically, collectively, corporately worshiping. Some of the least emotive men that I know, I'll pick on guys. I'm talking like full-on robot guys here. Like those things on the internet that you have to get past in order to prove you're not a robot, they can't get past them. They just become different people when they worship. And I'm not talking about how, how dramatic they get. I'm saying for that kind of a person, singing at all is an unnatural and strange feeling much of the time. But because God is working in their heart, because they are reflecting upon and aware of and being shaped by these things that are true about our God who is so great, they worship, which is nuts, with other people right there. There are two reasons why a church would worship well. The first is that the second is that the church has really amazing music. 
These are the two reasons why in the American church, you will walk into a room and you'll be like, man, people are really worshiping here. And I would be, you may think, oh, that's so cynical. Well, you haven't been around then. Because yes, the Spirit of God can move you to worship. Or you've all been to a concert with your absolute favorite group and could not help but sing. Could not help but get pulled in. You love the way it sounds. You love the way it builds. You love the way it reacts. you react to it without even being able to help it. You cannot help but get involved and participate in it when the music is just so good. I've known churches with music on just a whole other level. And those places, man, people just light up in worship. You can't help it. If you connect with what that thing is, you will. Contrary to what you may think about yourself and your comfort level, anything about your past or your history, if we could hit on just the right, like, message of the content and the lyrics and execution and sound and vibe and environment, you would just let loose. You would do it. You'd get into a dance party if it was the right song. You may not believe it, but don't you dare tell me you don't believe it because I'm going to film you at a wedding at some point and I'm going to show it to you and you'll be like, okay, fine. It's different though. That's YMCA or whatever. I know that dance. It's easy. There's four steps. You know, our church has undergone a pretty big worship transition in the past few years. Our longtime worship pastor, Dave, is retired. At the same time, COVID hit, shut down our church for the better part of a year. Then, just to make things more disorienting and confusing for everybody, we tried to change how everything looked. The only thing we didn't do was change the way the chairs were facing. And now that I say that, maybe we'll do it next week. Who knows? It is really a challenge, isn't it? It's a challenge. When all of the things that, that you do come to know, that you are familiar with, especially if you really connect with and resonate with the way worship is, it is a challenge when those things change. But it is an uncomplicated situation to find yourself in as a believer. And I say it's uncomplicated because the good news is there are two reasons why a church would worship well. The first is that the people of the church are experiencing and reflecting on and being shaped by and repenting as a result of and hoping in and being grateful for who God is and what he has done in our lives. And if that is happening, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter what the music sounds like. We can worship. Or churches will just worship so well because the music's amazing and everybody agrees with it. Everybody knows it. That is a truth about church. That is a truth about worship. That is a truth about being a believer. And it extends far beyond worship. You can have community in the perfect group of people that you get to put together. But that's not biblical community. Biblical community is not the perfect group of people you'd put together. It's the group of people that have one thing in common, which is Jesus, and most of the time, very, very many things that are different. You can grow in your faith and be challenged by and encouraged by a church family of people. 
Not that you have personally constructed and put together by all the people you'd want to have in your life the most, but instead a huge diversity of a group of types of people, people of all different walks of life and all different faiths, people that believe, as we talked about last week, if we are a people whose identity is in Christ, then that means that everything else about us is secondary. The most important thing is that we're in Christ. This is not an easy thing for some reason, especially when things get difficult, especially when persecution comes, especially when we feel like it is not easy to live as a believer in the world in which we live. But the message that God gives to Paul, or not Paul, but John, that John gives to the rest of the church that applies to us very much today is this. It is not about how big the empire is around you. It is not about your identity isn't in and your faith isn't in that. There might be times when it is very easy to be a Christian in our country or in our world or in the city in which you live or in the group of people or the job that you have. And there might be seasons of life where it is very, very difficult to be faithful to God in that. The the call is the same. Remain faithful. And that as we do that, we do it by fixing our gaze on God. And the way that we remain faithful isn't just believing that he wins in the end. But this is key. It is believing that he wins in the end and not giving up. Because how many times have people gone to Revelation read about the ending, been like, then what am I supposed to care about? I know where I'm going. I feel very confident in that. Sounds like the world's going to pass away anyway. I'm done. I don't care. That is also giving up on the call that he's given us. If we really understand this, we hope that hope leads us to repentance That hope and that repentance and everything else collectively leads us to worship. So as we do that in this time, I encourage you to truly ask yourself the question of, of, to, to truly reflect on these very things that we are worshiping and singing about. These things that we all agree on. Give that praise to God because it is what is due to him. It is what he deserves. And let us be more unified in this time as we worship together than in literally any other time of your week. Let's pray. Father, if there's one thing that any person who believes in Revelation walks away with, it is a sense of just how unbelievably incomprehensible heaven, your kingdom, and you are. We have just a hint, just a glimpse at how great you are, and it tells us that if we were there, if we were really there, it would be completely overwhelming. God, it isn't meant to frighten us or terrify us. 
It is meant to remind us and give us something that we desperately need, which is perspective, God. Would you give us the right perspective? Would you cause the empires of this world to shrink down to nothing when we're in this room worshiping you together? And would you cause your kingdom to grow and be magnified in our minds, Lord, in our hearts? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.